with me to Babylon? Come, I will take care of you. If it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, go no further. Look, the whole land is in front of you. Wherever it seems good and right for you to go, go there. So Jeremiah, what happens? Here's our question. What happens to Jeremiah? Jeremiah is in chains with everybody else being led off into captivity, apparently an accounting error. Uh, they're just leading everybody off. Everybody's in the chain line. Everybody's walking. But they don't make it out of Israel until uh, this commander spots him and says, no, 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 you're free, and sets Jeremiah free. And then miraculously, this commander of Nebuchadnezzar's army, this Babylonian with a very Babylonian name, declares the glory of God and says, uh, Jeremiah, what happened here is just like you said it was. God brought your God, brought judgment against your people and sent us to bring judgment, and so we have, but not onto you because God had made a promise to Jeremiah that Jeremiah would survive all of this. And God keeps His promise to Jeremiah here. God, apparently speaking from the mouth of this foreign commander who is strikingly uh, more reverential of the one true God of Israel than all the Israelites. So he says to Jeremiah, what, what do you want? I mean, your God has spared your life. You are the servant of the Most High God. What, you, what you, I'll t- you want to come to Babylon? I've got a house for you. I'll take care of you. Whatever you need, you're going to have a great life. If you want to come, come along. We'll, whatever you need, I will take care of it. Or do you want to stay? Look, where do you want to go? All over the land, any of it, it's yours. And even before Jeremiah can respond, this commander says, you're supposed to stay here. And he gives him a bunch of meals, rations. He sends Jeremiah off with all the food that he's going to need and gifts. He gives Jeremiah gifts. This is incredible. Who does this sort of thing? What enemy commander takes one of the captives and gives him homage, gives him gifts, takes care of him and says, go wherever you want to. The land's all yours to take and to keep. It's not just that God stays with Jeremiah. It's that you're to understand that even though all of the guards and the king and all the officials of the king's court and anybody who is essentially skilled in any way, anybody who knew how politics worked, who knew how to write, anybody who had any, all these people were taken out of the land off into captivity to be productive, useful slaves. You know what's handy if you're making slaves? It's handy if they're skilled. And you know what's not particularly helpful is if they're unskilled. And so they left in the land the very poorest of the people. Not the landowners, not the commanders of the army. They just left some Israelites there. And what's happening here is that God's word is going to stay with his people in the land. Now, these poor captives who are going to remain here, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to appoint an Israelite, a Jew, over them. Gedaliah is his name. He's going to appoint a king and say, All right, you stay here, is what happens very next in the story in verse 7. Nebuchadnezzar appoints the king and says, here, you stay here, you take care of them. His name's Gedaliah. He's one of the Israelites. And he says to him, take whatever you want to from the land. That is, there's a bunch of crops. So go ahead and harvest them all. Take the fruit, make some bread, make some wine. You just keep it. He doesn't charge taxes on them. He doesn't do anything else. He just leaves the land to these people. And he the Babylonian king appoints a leader over these people. You would understand that as the hand of God at work. But now, there were some other people remaining in the land too. Some of the commanders, some of the generals in the army who were fighting against the Babylonians, some of those leaders who were related somehow in the royal family had taken to the hills 
as one does when you're running away scared. And they become guerrilla fighters way out in the hills. And when the Babylonian army is leaving with all the exiles, these guerrillas come back in to the city. And they say, okay, what's, on, what's going on? What's happening? Who's in charge? And here's what Gedalia says to him. Verse 9 is where we'll actually get back to reading. Gedalia, son of, ah uh, of Hakimah, son of Saphan, swore an oath to them and to their men and assured them, don't be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon. It will go well for you. As for me, I'm going to live in Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who come to us. As for you, gather wine, gather summer fruit, gather oil, place them in storage jars, live in the cities that you've captured. This is the word he says to him, and it's the word of the Lord, what God had been promising all of this time. God had said, if you will go along with this, you're going to lose your independence. That's absolutely going to happen. I'm taking the land away from you. But if you will obey me, even now I will provide for you, whether in exile or in the land. And for a group of people who had been fighting for their freedom, the offer is incredible. The offer is this. Live where you want to. Take what cities you want to. They're countrymen. They're fellow Israelite. Appointed by the king Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, I'm going to go up to Mizpah. That's where Samuel, Samuel used to rule at uh, before Jerusalem was Jerusalem. So I'm going to go up into the north and I'm going to rule from here. And when the Babylonians come back down, the court emissaries, I'll dialogue with them and make sure they get what they want and we run okay, but do whatever you want to. Even he, as the king, doesn't tell them what they have to do, doesn't demand fealty. He just says, take the land. Go back into whatever city you want to take over. It's yours. And he says even better. I mean, how great is it if somebody gives you a piece of land that you can farm yourself? It's a big deal. But even better, go and take a land that has already been sown and just harvest what's there. They don't even have to work. The food's just ready for the taking. He says, go take the fruit off the trees. The trees have been pruned. Somebody else did all the work. All you got to do is take the richness of the land for yourself. This is what God had ordained for them, and this is what he says to them. So, here in the epilogue, what do they do, these descendants of the court officials, these members of King, Neb uh, of King Zedekiah's own family? Do they go along with it? Do they take God's provision? They can have whatever they want. They can stay in the land. They can have the food of the land. They don't even have to pay taxes to Babylon. The only thing they don't get is they don't get their independence. That is given over to God who will restore it to them in His time, not theirs. God has promised they will have their independent nation again someday, but not today. I don't know, is it a good deal? What would you do? Would you take it? If God says to you today, if, what, what if you prayed to God today for something? And he doesn't give you exactly what you want, but he gives you what he is saying is good for you. Will that be sufficient for you? What if God says to you today, I'm going to provide for everything you need, but you are going to lose your independence. Would that be sufficient for you? Would you take that from the hand of the Lord as these people are supposed to? What if you pray to God for a child, for children, and you get one? but not as many as you wanted. 
What if, what if you pray to God for opportunity and He provides for you, but it's not the opportunity that you wanted? Will that be all right for you? What if you pray to God for peace? <laughs> I pray to God for peace. <laughs> what, do you, what if you pray to God for peace? And He gives you peace, but He gives it to you in the midst of uncertainty. What if He doesn't give you peace all around you, but what if He gives you His peace in your heart in the midst of uncertainty? What if He sets a table for you, but He sets a table for you in the presence of your enemies? What if God answers your prayer today, but He says to you, wait? What if the response you get when you pray to God today is yes, but just not yet, not right now? Would that be... Would that be sufficient? Would that be enough? Would you, would you be accepting of that? What if He provides for you everything that you need, but He doesn't take away the loneliness? What if you cry out to God and you receive the Holy Spirit? Will that be enough for you? These men here, what will you do if God provides, but He doesn't do it on your terms? Because that's what happens here. These men, these members of the old royal family, these fighters and commanders, they come in out of the hills to survey the scene and see what's happening. And their countrymen, their fellow countrymen, says to them, here's what's happened. It's over. Babylon came in. Jerusalem is destroyed. I can't even lead from there. I'm going up to Mizpah. We have to find a town that's not in shambles. But look at the fields. Everybody else planted these, and you could just take it. You can stay in the land, but you, you will not get to keep your independence, and you must stop fighting for it and receive the judgment of the Lord as earned. What do they do? They kill Gamelia. <laughs> Gedelia, excuse me. They kill him. In verse 41, or chapter 41, right at the beginning of it, they kill him. They sit down for a meal together, and while some of them try to warn this king and say, hey, you know that uh, the other one, the member of Zedekiah's family, is going to try and kill you, you know that he's conspiring with the Ammonites. It's a classic move of Israel when they want to disobey God as they conspire with the neighboring nations. He says, you know he's conspiring with the Ammonites to try and get his land back under Ammonite control, but he'll work for them rather than under Babylonian control. And you know he's going to kill you, right? And then it happens, chapter 41. He kills him. He kills him along with all the rest of the Babylonian guards that were remained. So apparently a small number of Babylonian guards stayed there, of course, to protect um, Gedalia. And uh, this one, Ishmael, kills them all. He says no, essentially. His prayers are answered. He can stay in the land. He can have the food. God will provide for him. There's going to be peace, but he will not have the independence. He will not be in charge of it, and it's not enough for him. He kills God's ambassador. He kills his fellow countrymen. He tries to throw off again, even though the yoke of Babylon is absolutely on them. He's still trying to throw it off, and then it gets even worse. Verse 4 of chapter 41 is where we will pick up reading again. On the day after he killed Gedalia, when no one knew yet, 80 men came from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria, and they had shaved their beards and they had torn their clothes and they would gashed themselves. They were carrying grain and incense offerings to bring to the temple of the Lord Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, 
came out of Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. And when he encountered them, he said, Ah, oh, come to Gedalia, son of Achim, uh, of <laughs> Ahakam. But when they came to the city, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, and the men who were with him, slaughtered them and threw them into a cistern. So let me explain what happens here. He kills the person who God had put there. He continues to conspire with the Ammonites to try and retake the land for himself in his name under Ammonite control rather than that. He continues to reject all the words of the Lord. And then a bunch of his countrymen come together to worship the Lord. And it's a little more important than it even seems on its face because the places that they're coming from, Shechem, Shiloh, Samaria, these are places that were a part of the northern kingdom. As you might recall from Scripture, the northern kingdom, when they separated off from the southern kingdom, they didn't keep coming down to Jerusalem to worship there. They created their own places to worship God up here. You recall this is an issue. At the time of Christ, the, Samar- the, Samarians, uh, the Samaritans rather, uh, worship in different locations. The woman at the well asks Jesus about this. Do we have to worship in Jerusalem? Can we not worship in our own place? Uh, something incredible and miraculous is happening when their fellow Israelites, but the ones who weren't of the southern kingdom, of the northern kingdom, are trying to come and worship together with the people in the southern kingdom for the very first time since the time of Solomon. Nothing like this had happened in hundreds of years. But they come humbling themselves, tearing their clothes, shaving their beards, ready to offer and worship the Lord God in His temple in Jerusalem. The temple is destroyed but they're still the place where the temple was, and they're going to go and do what they can. This looks absolutely like the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises when all of Israel will gather back together in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. This is wild that this is even happening, that these other men would come down and would cross the border into Judah, would come into Jerusalem to worship in Jerusalem at the temple with all the history that they have for hundreds of years. God is bringing His people back together, even in captivity, to worship Him. And what does Ishmael do? Yeah, once you know that part of the story, it's even worse. He takes these people who are coming to church, 80 of them gathering together to worship the Lord. He says to them, oh, come on in and be greeted by the king that nobody knows I killed yet. And he kills all of them, throws them into a well. So we know what he will do when he receives a word of the Lord, and the word is, I'm going to protect you and provide for you, but not on your terms, not with your independence. And the question is left for us today, what will we do? We're going to leave our passage alone for today. That's chapter 40 and 41. There is more, and it continues on, but I think that is enough for us to discuss today and for us to have this question before us. What will you do when God is providing for you, but not in the way that you wanted or on your terms? What will you do when God is protecting you, but not on your terms? What will you do when God shows grace upon grace upon grace, but on His terms and not yours? What will you do if you get the goodness of God from God, and He provides for you all good things, but you don't get the things that you asked for? A couple things that you need to recognize from this passage. First, God is not capricious 
or wishy-washy like King Zedekiah is. God is offering to them over and over again the same grace. It's not that God is saying, all right, you're about to get judgment. Nah, I changed my mind. Okay, you're about to get judgment. Nah, I changed my mind. He's not capricious. He's not wishy-washy. God's desire always for them was that they should have the very best. God didn't bring them out of slavery in Egypt because He wanted to send them back into slavery as a joke in Babylon. God's desire was always to bless them. So, God is not going back on His promises. Rather, you need to know from this passage that God is a God of second chances. A second chance, and a second chance, and a second chance, and a second chance, a second chance until the word second has no meaning because it's just one after the other, the grace of God. And how do they respond to, okay, you're, now you're in punishment, now you're in exile, now you're slave nation to Babylon, but I'm still going to take care of you. Will they hear it then? I think the same offer from God comes to each and every one of us. We've sinned, you and I. We've done wrong. We've hurt other people. And yet, even if you are living right now in the consequences of your own mistakes and sin, God is offering you a second chance. It's never too late. God extends His hand continuously to say, okay, I know what you've done, but the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for all of your sins. All of these things are forgiven, but here's your chance. Will you come now and worship the Lord? Will you come now and turn away from your old life? Will you come now and change directions and follow after Him? God is not capricious. God is a God of second chances. This can only be explained in one way. God really and truly actually wants your salvation. That's the only thing that explains it. This God actually does care about you that much and has good plan for you and desires you. The, the only thing that will explain Christ coming and dying on the cross to pay for all of our sins is this. God actually wants you to be forgiven. And He does. So even today, he still holds his hand out to you saying, come on, it's still not too late. It's still not too late after all this time. It's still not too late. Come, friends, and turn to the Lord. God is a God of second chances. But the second thing that we discover in this passage, the second chances don't go on forever. You can't live your life presuming on the grace of God. You don't want to live your life saying, well, you know what? Let me do some math real quick. This God is a God of second chances, so I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm certain that if I do, He'll still forgive me. Don't live like that. Don't presume upon the grace of God. His desire is your salvation, so He'll offer a second chance and a second chance, but someday judgment comes. Someday there is the last day for Jerusalem and then there is the last day for some other ones. The fact that God is gracious and desires salvation does not mean you can presume upon it and say, oh, I'll forgive me, I might as well go on doing what I'm doing. Don't wreck yourself up against that rock of judgment, but rather turn today and follow Him. God is a God of second chances, and as Christ has not come back yet, you have yet another opportunity. In fact, it turns out when you think about it this way, 
every last day, it's not God slow about keeping His promises, as some count slowness, but rather each day passing before Christ returns is God's patience towards you because He doesn't want any lost. Don't you know it would be better for Christ to return and set right everything that is wrong in the world today? But don't you also know that today is a testimony to how patient He is towards you, still holding out the hand of a second chance for you? The judgment does come, so do not delay and put your trust in Christ now. Finally, this passage teaches us a truth that we will learn more clearly in the New Testament from Christ Himself, and that is this. Anyone who wants to keep their life will lose it, but anyone who loses their life for Christ's sake will keep it. Did you see that for Ishmael, he, there was no blessing God could give him if he didn't get to keep his independence, his own nation, then he wouldn't have anything. It was independence or nothing for him. But don't you know for Jeremiah, who had given up his own independence long before that to follow and serve the Lord, that he kept his life and was able to live a good life before the Lord. I tell you, the same offer is before all of us, and that anyone who demands their own life and demands their own independence, anyone who demands for themselves, anyone who tries to keep their life will lose it, but anyone who is willing to lose their life for Christ's sake will keep it. Perhaps by way of illustration, it goes like this. So, pawn shops, yeah? Have you ever pawned anything? I haven't ever pawned anything. Uh, when I was in college in Arkansas, there was a uh, popular horse track not too far away in Hot Springs, and uh, I, I found out from some other guys who were locals there in the area in Arkansas and in Hot Springs that the place to be on horse racing day wasn't at the horse track. The place to be was at the pawn shops across the street because guys were pawning all kinds of stuff at crazy prices in order to try and go and win some money at the track. The whole thing was awfully sad. I don't present this to you as a life tip on how to find good deals at pawn shops. But you understand the policy of it. You understand how this works. The idea is you need some cash. You have something. You take it to the pawn shop, agree on a price. They give you the cash, hold your object. And then if you can go back at a certain time, you can get it back with interest. And the interest accumulates over time. And so if you can't go back and pay for your good, whatever it is, your mother's necklace or your grandfather's shotgun, you know, the pawn shop keeps it. I'm not sure how that's funny. Those are real pawning objects, right? <laughs> I mean, right? This is not the normal thing. All right. So let's say, let's say it goes like this. Two guys walk into a pawn shop, and they need some money, and so they put up as collateral the thing that they pawn is their lives, okay? They offer their lives, and they go off and they do what they can with what they receive, and they come back and they realize they cannot pay the cost to redeem their lives. They now belong to the pawn shop owner. But someone comes in, yeah, in our illustration, it's Christ. Someone comes in and says, hey, listen, I can afford to pay to redeem your life, but whatever it is that I redeem, you have to give to me. Will you take that deal? Let's say one man who doesn't have possession of his life at this moment says, no, I want to keep control. The one person who says, I don't already, already doesn't have control over, no, 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 I want to keep it. I don't want to lose my life. What happens to that person? I mean, he's already lost it. Clearly, he loses it. There's not another way to get it back. 
What about the person who takes Christ up and says, yes, please, pay for it, and it's yours, and I'm yours as well? What happens to that person? The one who loses their life for Christ's sake gets to keep it. This is what it is to be a Christian. We have a debt we cannot pay, and judgment is coming, but Christ has already paid for everything that we've done wrong, and God is offering a second chance today. And if you will take the forgiveness, you must offer your life and everything in it over to Jesus as Lord. If you want the Savior, Jesus, you will also need the Lord, Jesus. The one who would be your Savior would also be your Lord. I tell you, you're losing nothing. It's not even worth thinking over for a moment. But by all means and in all ways today, cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, you be the Lord. Jesus, you be the boss. Take, take, the, take the independence. Whatever it is you want from me, you can have. Because his ways are better than our ways, and his plans for your life are better than your own plans for your life. And what's better than forgiveness of sin and eternal life? Come, take the deal, friends. Christ has offered a second chance before you as well today, and it is this. All those who come to Him, He will not lose one. He will forgive you and make you His. Dear friends who have already been Christians for years but are living in sin once again, today's the day for you. There's a second chance from Christ. Why not let today be the day when you turn away from your sins and put your trust in Christ again? He will still receive you, you who go to Him. Come, let's all go to Christ together. Father God, I thank you that you're so gracious to us. I thank you that you're the kind of God who is gracious to us, even in the middle of our sorrows. I thank you that you're the kind of God who is providing for Israel, even when they were in captivity. And I thank you that you're the kind of God who is taking care of us, even when we're in desperate situations. I thank you that you are the kind of God who does not leave us alone, even when we are in the hospital I thank you that you are the kind of God who does not leave us alone even when we are out of our minds. I thank you that you are the kind of God who provides all good and perfect gifts. I stand today to say, Father, my life is yours. Jesus is Lord. Take all of it. I stand here today to call the rest to worship you. Father God, Jesus is our Lord. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to conclude today.